Well, we are blessed, aren't we, to have such a gifted musical team, and uh, appreciate uh, you guys leading us so well and um, making uh, not just our special holidays special, but every Sunday special. And uh, we appreciate all the sacrifices each of you make um, who serve in our music ministry, getting here early, um, practicing during the week, and and uh, just serving us so well, and ultimately worshiping the Lord, because we know that's what you're doing, and you're just drawing us in uh, to worshiping with you, and we really, really appreciate um, your ministry to us. Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I want to look in a little more depth at the passage that we ended on last week. Uh, in our series uh, in Philippians. Uh, and by the way, if you weren't here last Sunday, I know many of you are traveling, uh, going out of town for Thanksgiving. Um, I would encourage you to go online and listen to that message, last Sunday's message. It probably was one of the most important messages um, in this series so far, and maybe even in, as we continue, um, as we looked at Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 in particular, Uh, What some would say is the theme verse of the book of Philippians, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is a very important declaration from the Apostle Paul that we need to understand. What did he mean by that and how does that apply to our lives? And so if you missed last Sunday's message, again, please go online and listen to it sometime in the next week or two. And um, I didn't want to continue on uh, in Philippians knowing that there was probably some people still out of town this morning, and, and so I thought this would be a good supplement to, to look at Paul and how he viewed death. And uh, because really how we view death dictates how we live our lives. And so this is a really uh, an historic text. Philippians, I'm referring to 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 6 through 8. And again, if you remember last week, this is where we ended um, in considering um, Paul's final charge here to his young disciple Timothy. Just read along with me in your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Father, we uh, always want to say thank you for this precious book that we have before us that we even have a copy, Lord, in light of the fact that so many around the world, believers, uh, have never had their own copy of the scriptures, and we have multiple copies in our homes and our offices, and we just thank you for the rich blessing that your word is to us, and and, and Lord, we are are most uh, responsible, most accountable to, to study your word and to understand your word and to apply your word to our lives. And so we know that we can't do this in our flesh. We need your spirit uh, to help us understand, to illuminate our minds, 
and to help us to apply, uh, Lord, these truths to our lives. And so we ask for your Spirit's um, powerful work in our midst even now, for your glory and our good we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by reading for you a very sad, sobering, true story that I came across in a book by Steve Farrar, and the name of the book is called Finishing Strong. Finishing Strong. Listen to what he writes. You've all heard of Billy Graham, but what about Chuck Templeton or Braun Clifford? Have you ever heard of them? Billy Graham wasn't the only young preacher packing auditoriums in 1945. Chuck Templeton and Braun Clifford were accomplishing the same thing and more. All three young men were in their mid-twenties. One seminary president, after hearing Chuck Templeton preach one evening to to an audience of thousands, called him, quote, the most gifted and talented young man in America today for preaching. Templeton and Graham were friends. Both ministered with Youth for Christ. Both were extraordinary preachers. Yet in those early years, most observers probably would have put their money on Templeton to become the more famous of the two. As a matter of fact, in 1946, the National Association of Evangelicals published an article on men who were best used of God in that organization's five-year existence. The article highlighted the ministry of Chuck Templeton. Billy Graham was not even mentioned. Templeton, many felt, would be the next Babe Ruth of evangelism. Ron Clifford was yet another gifted 20-something fireball. In 1945, many people believed that Clifford was the most gifted and powerful preacher the church had seen in centuries. At the age of 25, Clifford touched more lives, influenced more leaders, and set more attendance records than any other clergyman in American history. People stood in line for hours to get into an auditorium to hear him preach. When he went to Baylor University to give a discourse, they actually cut the ropes of the bells in the tower so that nothing would interfere with his preaching. For two and a half hours, the students of Baylor sat on the edge of their seats as he gave a dissertation on Christ and the Philosopher's Stone. Clifford was tall, handsome, dashing, intelligent, and sophisticated. Hollywood actually tried to cast him in the role for the famous movie The Robe. He seemed to have everything. In 1945, Graham, Templeton, and Clifford all came shooting out of the starting blocks like rockets. You've heard of Billy Graham. So how come you've never heard of Chuck Templeton or Bron Clifford? The answer may stun you. Just five years later, Templeton left the ministry to pursue a career as a radio and television commentator and a newspaper columnist telling the world that he no longer believed in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. He became an atheist. By 1950, this future Babe Ruth of preaching was not even in the ball game and no longer believed in the validity of the claims of Jesus Christ. And Clifford? By 1954, Clifford had lost his family, his ministry, his health, and then his life. Alcohol and financial irresponsibility had done him in. He wound up leaving his wife and their two Down syndrome children. His last job was selling used cars in the Texas panhandle. At just 35 years of age, this once great preacher died from cirrhosis of the liver in a rundown motel on the outskirts of Amarillo. 
He died, as one pastor put it, unwept, unhonored, and unsung. Some pastors in Amarillo took up a collection among themselves in order to purchase a casket so that his body could be shipped back east for a decent burial in a cemetery for the poor. In 1945, three men with extraordinary gifts were preaching the gospel to hundreds of thousands of people across the nation. Within 10 years, only one of them was still on track for Christ. What a sobering account. And it's a reminder to us this morning that in the Christian life, it's not how you start that matters, but it's how you finish. Anyone can start well, but finishing well, that's the hard part. And based on statistics, the sad reality is that more falter than finish. How about you? You may have gotten off to a, a great start in your Christian life. You're even now sold out for Jesus. You have a burning desire to be used by the Lord and to make an impact on other people's lives. You're committed to faithfully serving Him for the rest of your life. You're looking forward to that day when you will hear Jesus say to you, Well done, my good and faithful servant. That may be true, but we all need to remain keenly aware of the frightening reality that countless others who started off with the same or even greater zeal and passion than us have since veered off track and become spiritual casualties. And more than just scaring us, <laughs> that should serve to stimulate us to make it to the finish line ourselves. Remaining faithful to the end of our lives is not easy, but it's not impossible. And Paul proved that. And here in this final charge that he gave to his young disciple Timothy, he challenged Timothy to be faithful to the finish. Because by God's grace, he had been faithful to the finish. And Paul's own example here provided the incentive for Timothy to fulfill his charge. The fact that Paul was about to, to die heightened the urgency of, of this charge to his spiritual successor, and the time had come for Timothy to step up and take Paul's place as the leader of the church. Paul had run his leg of the race, and now he was handing off the baton to, to Timothy, and now it was Timothy's turn to, to run his lap and then pass the baton off to the next generation, and really the future of the gospel would rest on this young man's shoulders. This was an epic moment in the history of the kingdom of God, no less than when Moses passed on the leadership of Israel to Joshua, or when Elijah handed over the prophetic mantle to Elijah, or when Jesus commissioned the disciples to carry on his ministry before he sent it back to heaven. And like all these previous ministry transitions, the pattern set by the one passing away served as the inspiration for the one being entrusted with the sacred task of carrying on the work. Paul, here, was writing within months, maybe even weeks, of when Nero would order his head to be chopped off. And his main goal in this letter, 2 Timothy, was to encourage and equip Timothy to remain fearless and, and, and faithful after he was gone. And even in spite of the 
the, the defection and uh, the, the, the persecution that were assaulting the church in Paul's day. More than anything else, Paul wanted to make sure that Timothy was faithful and fearless in his preaching of God's word. Notice the context here in 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And by the way, that would not be easy in light of the fact that the growing majority of people in the church would lose interest in biblical preaching and would want to listen to preachers who would tell them what they wanted to hear so they could feel good about themselves. That's what he says in verse 3. He says, for the time will come when they'll not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. How was Timothy to respond to, to this age of the itching ear? Well, Paul made it unmistakably clear that even though people would rather have feel-good sermons than clear, bold, authoritative teaching of God's Word, it didn't change the fact that Timothy had a sacred duty to fulfill. And that's what he says in verse 5. But you, in light of all these other people who want to have their ears tickled and who want to surround themselves with teachers who will tell them what they want to hear, they'll make them feel good, they'll Kind of like the dog loves to get scratched behind the ears, right? These people want to get scratched behind the ears. They want to feel good. No, you, Timothy, in the midst of just this this generation who, who doesn't want to hear the word preached, preach it anyway. Don't capitulate. Don't compromise. Resist the urge to be trendy and 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 to adapt to the prevailing fashions of the day. And he gives him four commands here in verse 5. He says, but you, number one, be, what do you say there? Be sober in all things. Timothy, how are you going to finish strong here, brother? Well, number one, you need to be sober in all things. You need to be alert. You need to be aware of what is going on around you. You need to be uh, discerning. You need to be steadfast and stable and unwavering. Don't vacillate back and forth or let the fickleness of your listeners sway you from the truth. You need to exercise sound judgment. Be sober in all things. Secondly, he says, endure hardship. You need to be willing to put up with ill treatment from those who don't want to hear the truth. And we know this to be true, that those who faithfully proclaim and live the truth are bound to encounter opposition and persecution in a culture that rejects sound doctrine. Paul said in the previous chapter that anyone who lives godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Verse 12 of chapter 3. And so he tells Timothy, hey, be sober in all things, endure hardship, and then notice he says, do the work of an evangelist. And so Paul was reminding him that while the main focus of his ministry was was to teach and equip the saints, that there needed to be an emphasis on the good news of Jesus Christ. And and he, he always needed to keep the lost in mind that he wasn't just preaching to the choir, if you will, that there was lost people that he needed to be proclaiming the gospel to. Do the work of an evangelist. It's more than just being a pastor teacher. You need to be an evangelist. And then finally, he just says, simply says, fulfill your ministry. Timothy, finish the job 
that I entrusted to you. Be faithful to your obligations as a minister of Jesus Christ, even as I was in Ephesus, which was the very church in which Timothy was serving at the time when he received this letter. And so Paul is telling Timothy, hey, finish your ministry. And then he goes on to say, I finished mine. And so Paul, in verses 6 through 8, he shares his own personal testimony of his faithfulness to show Timothy and us what it looks like to finish well, to finish strong. And again, these are legendary words that Paul penned to Timothy, and in them we are taught how to live and die well. And the picture we should have in our minds here is it's as if Paul was lying on his deathbed and his life was flashing before him. And as it did, he first considered his current situation and then he reflected back over the last 30 years of his life and ministry. And finally, he pondered the glories that awaited him in heaven. And so in these three verses, verses 6, 7, and 8, Paul focused his attention in three different directions. He first of all focused on the present, then he focused on the past, and then he focused on the future. And so let's look at these three directions that Paul was focused in on and to see what we can learn from his example this morning. First of all, he considered the present. He considered the present. Verse 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. As you know, Paul had already been tried once by the Roman Emperor Nero. Uh, we're learning about that in our study of the book of Philippians. When he was under house arrest, he went through his initial trial. He mentioned uh, this uh, later on in chapter 4 here of 2 Timothy. At my first offense, verse 16, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. And so Paul knew it was only a matter of time before he was convicted and condemned to death. He'd already been released once. He wasn't anticipating that happening again. He was ready to die. He was prepared, as he says here, to pour out his blood as a martyr for the truth of the gospel. He was drawing imagery from the Old Testament sacrificial system, which included the drink offering. Along with all the burnt offerings, there was this drink offering where you would bring uh, some precious oil or some precious liquid and you would actually pour it out before the Lord in, in honor and, and praise and, and worship of the Lord. And, and so this was a, a beautiful act of worship. And so Paul didn't speak about his death grimly, but this was, this was beautiful, like, like an offering being poured out for the glory of God. I don't know if that's how you view death, but that's what you should think of when you think of death, that it's, it's, it's really you, you, your life being poured out as a drink offering for God's glory. We know that ever since Paul was radically converted on his way to arrest Christians and, and, and kill them uh, in Damascus, Paul had presented himself as a living sacrifice. In fact, he told the Romans that that's how they should live their lives as well. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. In other words, in light of how merciful God has been to you, 
Present your body as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And so Paul's life was this, was this one big living sacrifice of just worshiping and serving the Lord, and he was about to make the ultimate sacrifice, to ultimately, or, or to, to willingly, I should say, lay down his life in a final act of love and service for his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You remember what he said back in his first imprisonment when he was facing the threat of execution. He was released, but we're going to see this in the next chapter of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul said, Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Again, this idea of being poured out as a drink offering. So what was a possibility back then? We learned last week, there was a, it was possible that he might be executed. He didn't think it was going to happen. Now it's a certainty. He knows for sure now he's going to die. He's not going to get released this time. There, there would be no evading death. His life and work were over. It was time for him to depart and be with the Lord. And that's what he says here. The time of my departure has come. The time of my departure has come. Now, none of us know the exact time of our departure, the exact moment when we will die. That's been ordained by God before time began and will be brought about through his providential means. And so when we die and how we die is in the hands of God. But Paul knew that his time was near. And that word departure, we mentioned this last week, uh, was a common euphemism for death. It was the idea of loosing or being released. And this term was used to describe several things. Again, I mentioned this last week. It was used for, uh, to describe hoisting a ship's anchor to set sail, pulling up the anchor to go out to sea. Uh, it was used to describe pulling up tent cords when breaking camp. And so the idea is that of, 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 of Paul was leaving on a journey. That's how he viewed death. And, and really, that's what death is for us as Christians. It's, it's not the end of a journey, but it's the beginning of a journey. This word departure was also used to describe the release of a prisoner. That's interesting in light of the fact that Paul was, um, at this point, he wasn't just under house arrest. He was in a Mamertine prison, which was a, a, an underground uh, kind of hole in the ground, the worst case scenario where you could be kept awaiting his execution. And yet, he didn't see execution or, 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 or uh, death as execution. He wasn't facing execution. He was facing liberation. In his mind, the executioner's sword w- would free him from the sin-cursed world in which he lived. And so he saw this as a glorious departure, a release of a prisoner. I think one of my favorite analogies for this word departure was that of unyoking an ox. After a long day's work, the farmer would come and take the yoke off the ox and let him rest. And so Paul had been working hard, serving the Lord and sacrificing for many years. And now his master would graciously unyoke him and put him out to pasture, if you will, where he could rest from the pain and toil of ministry. But again, when he talks about this his death, I'm, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. There was nothing depressing about the way Paul described his impending death. 
I mean, these are triumphant tones that he's using to express himself, which, which show his great faith, his great, his great hope in death. In other words, Paul wasn't afraid to die. In fact, he was looking forward to it. He, he could hardly wait for it to happen. Again, we saw this last week in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. He said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the only way you can say that to, to die is gain is if you're living for Christ. And I didn't say this last week, but I, I thought of it afterwards, that if you're dreading death, it's probably because you're not living for Christ. That's the bottom line. If you're dreading death, it's probably because you're not living for Christ. The only way you can look forward to death is if you're living for Christ. Paul went on to say there in Philippians 1, If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yeah, I should say so. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. The point is, Paul was ready to die. He was ready. The question is, are you? Are you ready? If the Lord calls you home this next year, this next month, this next week, or how about this afternoon, will you be ready? See, none of us knows the exact moment when we'll die, and that's why we need to be ready at a moment's notice. And so Paul began by considering his present circumstances. Secondly, notice he reflected on the past. He reflected on the past. Verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the course, and I've kept the faith. Again, probably one of the most famous verses in all of Paul's epistles, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. And what was he doing here? He was looking back at his life, his ministry, and he summarized it with three simple, succinct statements. He likened life to, number one, fighting a fight, number two, to running a race, and number three, guarding a treasure. Let's look at each of these pictures of our lives and our ministries. Number one, it's a fight well fought. It's a fight well fought. He says, I have fought the good fight. The word fought there and fight are the words agonizomai and agon, which, of course, we get our English word what? Agony and agonize. And so we know that in Paul's letters, he often used imagery from the Greek games, the Isthmian games, the Olympic games. Um, this was one of Paul's favorite analogies of the Christian life and, 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 and Christian ministry. And the picture here is, is that of an athlete, more specifically a wrestler or a, a boxer struggling, contending to win a fight. And um, in the day and age in which we live, of where boxing is kind of now passe and the UFC, right, the ultimate fighting, you know, no gloves, right, or at least uh, very little gloves, the bare knuckle fighting that's going on, that's probably a better picture of the Christian life, that it's one big wrestling match, it's one big boxing match, it's one big cage match with Satan and false teachers and our own flesh. 
And Paul used this analogy often, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, he says, fight the good fight of faith. And then here, even in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The idea there is, uh, the picture there is of a wrestler, a grappler. And probably the most well-known passage is uh, using this athletic imagery is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that, I may, so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. That phrase there, I discipline my body, and make it my slave, literally he was talking about giving himself a black eye. He would give himself a black eye so that he would, be, he would not be disqualified. And we see this, we see this even in our modern sports, how athletes are oftentimes stripped of their medals or banned from the Hall of Fame because they use steroids or um, they somehow were involved in bribery and throwing games, whether it's Pete Rose or... Barry Bonds or Lance Armstrong, we all, we all get that concept. And so Paul is saying, listen, I practice rigorous self-discipline in regards to my lusts and my passions so I wouldn't foul out. I wouldn't be disqualified. What a great analogy of the Christian life. We all have a fight to fight. You have a fight to fight, I have a fight to fight. And we all are fighting against the same things, the same things as Paul did, the same thing everyone else has to fight against. We're fighting against the world, we're fighting against the flesh, and we're fighting against the devil. That really summarizes our enemies, if you will, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's who our fight is against. And so Paul describes his life as a, as a fight well fought, secondly, as a race well run, a race well run. We just read the passage in 1 Corinthians about running a race. He says here, I have finished the course. I have finished the course. And Paul didn't liken the Christian life or the scriptures don't liken the Christian life to a sprint, a hundred yard dash, but it's more of a marathon. And so like a, a runner with his eyes fixed on the finish line, Paul had put all of his energy into winning the race. Again, we're going to see this in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. He said, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The idea is somebody who's striving, who's running, and, and, and as they do uh, to cross the finish line, oftentimes they'll exert all of their energy, right, to get over to that finish line first. That's what he's saying here. 
And again, even as we all have a fight to fight, we all have a race to run. But we need to be careful in how we think about this race because it's easy to think that we're all running together in the same race, on the same course, where I think it would be better for us to consider the fact that we're running on a separate course that God has ordained for us. We're not running against each other. We're running against ourselves. And as we run, our focus needs to be on Christ and accomplishing the things that he's ordained for us to do. I read this verse last, last week, Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Paul says this, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Listen, there was only one apostle to the Gentiles, and that was, that was Paul. So Paul knew that, that he needed to finish his course, his race, and the ministry which he had received from the Lord Jesus. And so there are certain things that God has ordained you to do, certain things God has ordained me to do, um, that, that God has called us to do and to finish. And really the greatest challenge in running, I would say, is endurance. That's what makes a marathon so, so hard. I was just talking this week to a, a guy in our church who ran his first half marathon. And he had, uh, in his training, had done it over, overdid it a little bit before the race. And he had injured his knee. And so kind of halfway through the race, he said, man, my knee started acting up. And it's like somebody was hitting me with a hammer in the side of my knee every time I took a step. And he said, so I had to walk a little bit. He said, but I finished. But he said it was the hardest thing he'd ever done, just the endurance that it required to push through that pain. And that's oftentimes the way it feels like in the Christian life, right? You're just getting hit upside the head with a hammer all the time. There may be very painful situations, and it requires great endurance. And I think we can draw great hope from the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, when he says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so we have this, this, this great cloud of examples. That's what he's referring to, the Hebrews 11, the, the, the hall of faith, if you will, these, these great examples. It's not like that, that, that Daniel and Moses and Elijah are in the stands cheering us on. No, it's more like their names are up in the rafters and, and they're the, the guys who played on the team before us, and they're there to inspire us by their examples. And so we're to run with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you'll not grow weary and lose heart. Listen, God knew that there was going to be times in the Christian race where we would grow weary and we would lose heart and we would want to quit. And so he says, listen, you need to consider Christ. If there was anyone who had a reason for quitting because of what he had to endure, it was Christ. 
But then he goes on to say, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. Listen, it might be hard. You might feel like you are just you're sucking wind, right? And your lungs are on fire and your legs are just, you know, uh, you know like, uh, like, like noodles and you can't go any further spiritually. But listen, just to remind you, you've not, nobody's out there trying to crucify you like they did with Jesus. Hang in there. Consider him. Fix your eyes on him. And Paul exemplified that in his life, running with endurance. And so his life was a fight well fought, a a race well run, and then finally it was a faith well kept. A faith well kept. He says, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, and I have kept the faith. I've kept the faith. Now, he drops the use of imagery here, and just states the literal fact. I, I just kept the faith. I have remained faithful and true to the Scriptures. The faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. And not only had he continued to believe and obey the great doctrines of the Christian faith, he never wavered from those, but he also guarded them, and he passed them on to others. And through all the trials and all the tribulations and all the persecutions and the mockings and the beatings and the stonings, Paul had boldly defended the gospel against contamination, against adulteration, like a faithful steward who had been trusted with a special treasure for safekeeping. That was not true of all the spiritual leaders in Paul's day. In fact, some of the elders of this very church that Timothy was serving in, the church in Ephesus, went astray from the faith. They drifted away from the truth and they deviated from sound doctrine. In fact, they led other people astray as well. You may remember in the book of Acts when Paul visited the uh, Ephesian elders and gave them a farewell address in Acts chapter 20 as he was headed towards Jerusalem for the last time. He said this, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's a heavy task for an elder. He's reminding them of their duty. But why is he exhorting them to to guard themselves? As elders, we know we're supposed to guard the flock, right? But he's emphasizing here, he puts the emphasis on, hey, first of all, before you guard the flock, you need to guard your own self. And this is why. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, talking about false teachers who will come and and try to devour the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw the disciples after them. Even some of you, elders, will defect from the faith and will lead the church astray. I think Paul actually mentions by name at least two of these elders. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19. Paul tells Timothy to fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. It's my opinion that those two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, were two of the elders that were there 
at that final address that Paul gave in Acts chapter 20. Paul mentions them again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16, but avoid worldly chatter and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. There's maybe a third elder, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Not to scare you, but those were elders. Those were pastors. Those were, those were spiritual leaders that became spiritual shipwrecks. If it can happen to a pastor or an elder, it could happen to you, could it not? And so we have a faith to keep. We need to maintain our personal faith in the truths of God's word, but we also need to guard these truths against those who want to distort them, who want to destroy them, and ensure that they are accurately passed on to the next generation, which starts, by the way, with our kids. We need to pass on these truths, the truths of the gospel, to our children, and not just our physical children, but our spiritual children. And so Paul considered the present, then he also reflected on the past, and then finally he anticipated the future. He anticipated or, or pondered the future. Verse 8, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul was once again rejoicing, as he so often did, in what lay ahead for him. The fight had been fought, the race had been run, the faith had been kept, and now he looked forward to his heavenly reward with great anticipation. Notice he says, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. It was almost time for him to receive the reward that God was reserving for him in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 talks about that reward that is reserved for us, waiting for us in heaven. But, but notice, and this is uh, really a topic for an entire sermon of itself, is, is this whole concept of crowns. The, the book of Revelation talks about casting our crowns before the Lord. What are these crowns going to be? Well, in this context, there's only one crown that Paul's concerned with, and that is the crown of righteousness. And again, Paul, drawing from that uh, athletic analogy in, in his day, athletes, in, even as they do today, they, they win a, an award, a medal. But in those days, it was a, a laurel wreath, which was placed on their head like a crown. But notice the crown here that Paul was looking forward to receiving and that, and that we as Christians will receive is not a literal crown. It is a spiritual crown. It's, it's the perfect, everlasting righteousness of Christ. There's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Now, this is important for us to understand. What is this, this, this crown of righteousness? Well, when we repent of our sin and, and we place our faith in the person and work of Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us or applied to us. 
In other words, God sees us as if we were robed in the righteousness of Christ. And during our sanctification process, which we all go through as Christians, we grow in practical righteousness. Practical righteousness. In other words, we learn to think and act and talk in the right sort of ways. And yet, even so, we still struggle, as Chris mentioned um, earlier today, um, we, we still struggle with unrighteous attitudes and unrighteous actions. But when we get to heaven... God will glorify us and deliver us from this body of death and make us perfectly righteous, just like Jesus is righteous. And so he was looking forward to that that crown of righteousness. When all of that indwelling sin would be completely eradicated. As the song we sing says, save to sin no more. I can't think of a better crown than that, can you? To never sin ever again. And so he says, in the future there's later for me this crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And the picture here is that of of an umpire or a referee at some athletic event who presents the winner with the trophy or the prize. And, and, And what is unique about our heavenly judge is nothing escapes his attention. He never calls a ball a strike or a strike a ball. He gets it right 100% of the time. He never messes up a call. He never throws a flag when a flag shouldn't be thrown. And, and he never doesn't throw a flag when a flag should have been thrown, right? He's a righteous judge. And since he sees everything, that's the point. He's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he sees everything. He knows exactly what we deserve and will reward us accordingly. Unlike human judges, which, by the way, we all have in our lives, we have people that judge us from a human perspective. Paul had a human judge, Nero, who was not righteous. If he was righteous, he would have released Paul, knowing that he was a innocent man, but instead he declared Paul guilty and condemned him to be executed. But Paul didn't care. He was confident that God would reverse Nero's judgment and declare him not guilty and grant him eternal life. And so Paul was looking ahead to this crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous God will award me on that Day. That day, of course, is a reference to the day when Christ will return to judge the earth and graciously reward his followers for what we've accomplished and endured for him. And notice, he's not just thinking about himself here as he anticipates the future. He says, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The appearing, of course, is a reference to the second coming of Christ. And Paul wanted Timothy to know and us to know that we have the same reward to look forward to if we prove to be true believers as evidenced by our longing for Christ's return. But also to all who have loved his appearing. Listen, when you truly love someone and they go away, You can't stand being apart from them, can you? When you truly love them. 
You, 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 you long for them to come back. And so one of the greatest evidences that you truly love Christ, you truly know Christ, is that you have this eager longing for him to return. You can't wait for him to come back. And again, if you're dreading the second coming of Christ, then that's an indication, most likely, that you don't know him and you don't love him. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. In this letter about how do you know for sure you're saved, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. And so rather than shrinking away, we need to be joyfully awaiting the return of Christ. And as we do that, it will have a sanctifying influence in our lives and, it, and it, it'll spur us on to live holy and pure lives. So we'll, we'll be found faithful when he comes. And Paul had been living a holy, faithful life. And so he had no regrets and he was able to face death with no fear. And even so for us, if the Lord tarries, all of us, all of us will face death someday. And the question is, will it be with the same joy and the same confidence and the same anticipation as the Apostle Paul? When we're lying on our deathbed, will we be able to say what Paul said, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. This should be the triumphant epitaph of every true Christian. That by the grace of God, we could say this. And ultimately, it is only by the grace of God that we could say this, that we will persevere and remain faithful to the end. Listen, Paul was not bragging here. He was not taking credit for all that that he had done during his life in ministry. He was simply bearing witness to what God's grace had accomplished in his life. In his first letter to Timothy, he, he started off by just simply giving God the glory for, for his grace in his life. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. He told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15.10, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. It's like the, the hymn we love by John Newton, Amazing Grace, that God's grace is amazing because it saved a wretch like us but it also has brought us through many dangers, toils, and snares, right? And it will also, it's the grace of God, the amazing grace of God that will lead us home. It's all grace. We can't, we can't take any credit for any of this. But we can pray that God would be gracious to us and allow us 
to finish well, to finish strong. Or as one man put it, to get home before dark. To get home before dark. I'll never forget a conversation I had with a very godly man. We were driving down the boulevard in our subdivision. This was years ago, and we had invited him to come and be our guest speaker for our, one of our first missions conferences. And, and um, he's leading a, a worldwide ministry today. And, and uh, we were just driving down the road, and we were talking about a, a, a very well-known pastor up in the Dallas area who had recently begun to teach something that was not orthodox about the return of Christ and about how people are saved will ultimately be saved. And it really shocked the evangelical world that this guy who had been so faithful for so many years all of a sudden veered just ever so slightly away from the truth of God's word. And we were talking about that and I was trying to get some insight from this older godly man and he said, you know, he bumped his head. I was like, he what? Yeah, he bumped his head. That's what he said, that's what I call it when, when, when somebody kind of goes off doctrinally or morally. They, they bump their head. And then he said this. He said, Ken, that's why I always pray that I'll make it home before dark. I never heard that expression until then. Little did I know that he was quoting from a famous poem by another great man of faith named Robertson McQuilkin. You may have heard of him. He was the uh, well-known president of Columbia Bible College before it became Columbia University. He was probably most known for resigning from that position to take care of his wife who had, ha- had Alzheimer's. And so he gave up his position as the president of this college to stay home with his wife and to care for her uh, during the, her, her latter months before she died and went home to be with the Lord. And so he wrote this poem, and I want to read it for you as we close, and it's called Let Me Get Home Before Dark goes like this. It's sundown, Lord. The shadows of my life stretch back into the dimness of the years long spent. I fear not death, for that grim foe betrays himself at last, thrusting me forever into life, life with you, unsold and free. But I do not fear. I fear the dark specter may come too soon, or do I mean too late, that I should end before I finish, or finish but not well that I should stain your honor, shame your name, grieve your loving heart. Few, they tell me, finish well. Lord, let me get home before dark. The darkness of a spirit, grown mean and small, fruit shriveled on the vine, bitter to the taste of my companions, burdened to be borne by those brave few who love me still. No, Lord, let the fruit grow lush and sweet, a joy to all who taste, Spirit, sign of God at work, stronger, fuller, brighter at the end. Lord, let me get home before dark. The darkness of tattered gifts, rust locked, half spent or ill spent, a life that once was used of God, now set aside, grief for glories gone or fretting for a task never gave, mourning in the hollow chambers of memory, gazing on the faded banners of victories long gone, can I not run well unto the end? Lord, let me get home before dark. And then the last verse of the poem, which could be a a reflection on his 
what he saw happen to his wife and her mind as it left her. The outer me decays, I do not fret or ask reprieve. The ebbing strength but weans from, my, from Mother Earth and grows me up for heaven. I do not cling to shadows cast by immortality. I do not patch the scaffold lent to build the real eternal me. I do not clutch about my cocoon, vainly struggling to hold hostage a free spirit pressing to be born. But will I reach the gate in lingering pain? Body distorted, grotesque, or will it be a mind wandering, untethered among light fantasies or grim terrors? Of your grace, Father, I humbly ask, let me get home before dark. Father, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. We thank you for the example of Robertson McQuilkin and so many others over the course of church history who who never faltered, who never failed you, but they finished strong. Lord, we know that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect and never mess up and never bring you dishonor in some way, shape, or form by the way we act, the way we talk, the way we interact with others. But Lord, we pray that the end testimony, the ultimate testimony of our life would be one that would bring you praise and honor and glory. Lord, we know that none of this is possible in and, our, in and of our own strength. We, we desperately need your grace. And so we humbly ask you this morning that you would allow us to get home before dark. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.